I took three photos. I, I do photo books um, of what we do as a family every year. So every time we go somewhere, I have my camera and I just take pictures of what they're doing. And I thought, um, you know, mum's getting old. It'd be really good for William and, William and his sister to have um, memories of being at mum's. And my dad passed away in February that year, so that was really the first time we'd been back since dad had passed away. Yep. And we were going to go and visit dad's grave and they were drawing some pictures to put on his grave. They were sending some messages to Opa and things like that. And I just thought, I want to just take some pictures of that. Welcome to episode two of Where's William Tyrrell? William vanished when he was just three. But already in those three short years, his life had been incredibly challenging. In this episode, we'll look at why William was placed into foster care and why his biological parents abducted him to stop authorities taking him away. We'll also delve into the very complicated process of foster care and how William and his sister ended up with Peter and Jane. We'll also investigate the critical movements of both his foster and biological parents in the days leading up to William's disappearance and why they became prime suspects. I'm Natasha Belling. And I'm Leah Harris. This is Where's William Tyrrell? William had a very complicated start to life, didn't he? He certainly did. And if you can imagine, the first few years of a child's life are overwhelming and confusing for any child. But to then throw in the fact that he was born to one set of parents and then before he's even one year old, he's removed and put in the care of another set of parents. And that's just such a huge thing for a child to go through. And also in this story, often the person that's forgotten is William's older sister, Lindsay which we'll get to in a moment. But for Lindsay and William, their birth parents, tell us a little bit more about the mum and dad. There's obviously some issues in some history surrounding them that led to this whole situation. And I won't go into what that is in detail because uh, out of respect for them, and I don't think that is helpful for William's story, but for the purposes of introducing them, as I mentioned last episode, there are laws that prevent us from being able to identify William's foster family. It's actually not those same laws, though, that are preventing us from identifying his birth family. There was a Supreme Court decision a couple of years ago that actually allowed us to identify them, but there have been some recent court orders made by the coroner's court that do, again, prevent us from identifying them. So we'll be using pseudonyms for them throughout this podcast and that we're going to call them Stacy and Daniel. And I should also say that we have made attempts to contact them to speak with them for this podcast, but we haven't heard back at this stage. Now, they had had a girl first, a little girl, who we have named Lindsay for this podcast series. And she is, of course, William's older sister. Lindsay was taken out of their care quite early on before even William was born. So Lindsay was born in 2010 and she was living with her biological mum and dad, Stacey and Daniel, and there was some concerning things happening that made the department decide that that was no longer a safe home environment for her and they removed her from that home when she was three months old. She was placed in the care of another family. She wouldn't be placed into Jane and Peter's care until much later, so she was being cared for by another set of parents. 
Why can't we go into detail about what was happening in that home environment with William's birth parents? Look, I feel that it's not necessary or respectful to go into that history. And for the purposes of this podcast and the whole reason that I wanted to do this was to tell William's story. And I really just want to focus on his story and what happened to him when he was growing up. So, Leah, although Lindsay had been removed by the authorities, William was allowed to stay with his birth parents. Yes, uh, Stacey fell pregnant with the same man, Daniel, again, shortly after um, Lindsay was born. Um, And they actually separated while she was pregnant with William, but they got back together shortly before he was born in 2011. What happened after William was born? So he was in their care until he was about seven or eight months old and that was when the department decided again that it was an unsafe home environment for him. Again, I'm not going to go into why that decision was made but they did make the decision to have him removed from the home as well. Now throughout this episode, Leah, we're going to talk about what is often a very, very difficult and complicated process with foster care and the biological and foster parents. Now tell us about Jane and Peter who of course we now know ended up as William's foster parents, what were they doing at this stage? Yeah, so before William was removed, Jane and Peter had been approved foster carers since 2011. It was something that they'd always talked about wanting to do. They wanted to help kids who were in need of a safe and loving home. And I spoke about that recently with them. As you said, it is a huge thing that you guys decided to do to become their foster carers. What made you decide to do that? It's just something we've always wanted to do. So we're just yep. following through on yep. what we said we wanted to do. In many circumstances, Leah, if the children are being removed from homes, they've obviously seen or experienced many challenging things at such a delicate, precious age. So it's really important to get the right foster carers, isn't it? And you've had some expert advice and analysis into this. Yeah, that's right. So I spoke to someone who can tell us exactly what it takes for people to become foster carers. Uh, Dr. Amy Conley-Wright is an Associate Professor of Social Work and Social Policy at the University of Sydney, and she's actually been researching the child welfare system for about 20 years. So the process for recruitment of foster carers, it's uh, quite comprehensive because it is a very serious responsibility and so it's taken very seriously. Um, People do have to go through criminal background checks. They have to apply for what's called a working with children check and have that registered with the Office of the Children's Guardian. Um, And then the recruitment process can vary depending on the agency, but a standard process that's used by many agencies is called the step-by-step assessment process. And that involves a series of structured interviews where um, someone who's coming to do the assessment, uh, usually a social worker, a caseworker, will talk to the prospective foster parent or parents about why they want to care for a child, their capacity to keep a child safe, their understanding of child abuse and neglect, how they would respond to a child having trauma behaviors, an understanding of children's identity and their culture, because often children could be from a different culture and be fostered by a family who don't share their cultural background. So it's quite a detailed process of having a series of interviews. That's a sort of typical process. Jane and Peter had passed all of those checks by authorities and they'd fostered a number of other children as well. They had already fostered some children under those short-term care orders, which are quite common in these situations, uh, and that had all gone, you know, to plan. But what they really wanted was 
some children under long-term care orders that they could raise in a safe, loving home as their own until they turned 18. So that was what they were hoping for when they got the call about um, these two children. And in 2012, they got that call, Leah, that they were lucky enough to be chosen as foster carers for a nine-month-old baby boy and a two-year-old little girl who now we know was William and Lindsay and that Lindsay had already been removed for the birth parents and that William was about to be removed. So that situation was going on with Jane and Peter that they received that news. But on the other hand, the birth parents had found out that the authorities were going to take William. What happened then? Stacey and Daniel were told that William would also be removed from their care and this is after they've already dealt with the trauma of having Lindsay removed. And so they decided to do everything in their power to prevent that from happening and they spoke about that in their police statements. Daniel and I ran away when we heard about the court order. I just couldn't imagine handing over my son. I didn't want them to take William so Stacey and I organised to take William to my father's house and we stayed there with William. We had William for about seven weeks and we knew they were looking for him to remove him from our care. Police ended up finding us and they removed William from our care. So that was Stacey and Daniel's police statements obviously being read by an actor. Leah, seven weeks they had William for and they knew that authorities wanted to take him out of their care. What are your thoughts about that? Look, it's not uncommon to have what they call a parental abduction, which is in situations like this where obviously there's just so much emotion and so much trauma involved um, for biological parents to go to great lengths to protect um, that relationship and to prevent them from being removed. Um, Seven weeks is a a very long time and obviously that's traumatic for everyone involved Um, and obviously eventually police did catch up with them. Why did it take authorities seven weeks to find him? That I can't say. Um, They were at uh, Daniel's father's house. So, you know, obviously you could argue that perhaps um, that might have been a place that police were aware of. But again, I can't say why it took that long, but um, that that is how long it took. Did that raise suspicion for investigators in their initial inquiries, the fact that you could say that his birth parents had taken William once. Was there the possibility they could have done it again? Oh, absolutely. The the biological family was one of the first lines of inquiry that police followed. And in these cases, as I just mentioned, it is very common for this to happen. So that is, of course, the place that they went very early on. And we will obviously um, address that in a later episode. So we know police have finally found William after he was missing for seven weeks. What happens next? So they obviously removed him and he actually spent a night in hospital as a precaution. And then once William spent that night in hospital, they were both reunited in the care of Jane and Peter. I think someone that is sometimes forgotten, as we mentioned earlier in this story about William, is his older sister, who we're calling Lindsay for this series. She is a little girl who has lost her brother. And you've, through the interviews, have found that they had this amazing connection with each other, didn't they? Yeah, that's right. And, and you know, Jane and Peter have spoken to me about their special bond. I should say as well, though, they don't like to go into too much detail about her. They've told me that they don't want to speak for her and they don't want to tell her story when it comes to William. They want this to be her story to tell if she chooses to when she's older. So they don't speak about her a lot, but they do speak about that when they were reunited at, at, at Jane and Peter's home, the bond was instant and it was obvious. And, you know, they 
they've spoken about how they happily played together in the backyard on that first day when they came to live with Jane and Peter. I cannot begin to imagine how important that moment would have been for Lindsay, as we mentioned. She'd been taken away from her birth parents, had been placed in various foster care situations and to finally see her beautiful little brother in in what was seemed to be a very loving and safe environment must have been incredible. Yeah, absolutely. And and as I've said, they already had a close bond. And as anyone can imagine, having that biological sibling by your side through this journey is obviously just so important for them. And to make it even more tragic, the fact that that bond's been lost as William's still missing. Yeah. And talking about connections... There was an amazing connection within minutes of William and Peter meeting. You know, William had obviously already been through a lot in his short little life at that point, so he was a little bit apprehensive when he arrived, particularly with Jane. But when it came to Peter, there was an immediate connection and they have spoken about that before. And even though William is not biologically ours, the the link and the connection that he had with you was incredibly special and I'm not saying this in a way to detract from the relationship that he has with his biological family and his parents because I think that's incredibly precious and special. Mm. Yep. Um, I agree. But I think the link and the bond, bond between the two of you <clears throat> was just mm. fabulous to watch. Yeah, yeah. Specific to this case, we need to clarify the situation with long and short-term placement with foster care. Can you explain that, Leah? Yeah, so there's obviously a lot of different types of orders and in this case there was short-term orders and long-term orders. And short-term orders are just for the foreseeable future and in that scenario... um, There's a lot of regular visits with the biological family and it's obviously a high possibility in those types of orders that they will eventually be returned to their biological family. And in this case, in those initial few months, William was under a short-term order. So he was actually um, having regular visits still with Stacey and Daniel, his biological parents, in those first few months despite the fact that they had absconded with him. While Lindsay was placed in a a long-term care order, and that means that that she is the plan is she will remain with her foster parents until she turns 18. Stacey also spoke about this situation in her police statement. About a week or so after William was taken, Daniel and I got to see him. At this stage, we hadn't been allowed to see Lindsay because we'd absconded with William. I didn't see Lindsay for six weeks while we were in hiding with William. At this stage, Daniel hasn't seen Lindsay for about two years. He deliberately didn't see Lindsay so that docs wouldn't know we were together. We didn't want docs to know we were together because we were trying to get Lindsay back. Leah, this is so complicated even for adults to comprehend. This must be so incredibly confusing, this situation for little kids. Absolutely. And when they're still having contact with their biological family, which, as we know, is important and, you know, no one would want to diminish that significance of that relationship, but it is just so confusing for them. Although authorities had taken both Stacey and Daniel's two children away from them, they then took the steps to actually try and get them back through the courts. Take us through what happened there. Yeah, so Stacey and Daniel applied to the family court to have the orders that had been placed on um, Lindsay and William reversed. Um, Unfortunately for them, the court um, decided to do the opposite essentially. So um, as I mentioned before, Lindsay was under a long-term care order and William was under a short-term care order. And the court decided at that point to not only 
only uphold the long-term care order that was placed on Lindsay, but to also place a long-term care order on William. And that meant that both children were then ordered to be remaining, living with Jane and Peter in that foster care situation until they turned 18. The plans were that both he and his sister would be with you until they were adults. Correct. Mm -hmm. So that was obviously plans for the future that were... So they were placed with us um, under what's called long-term orders um, and that is when children, when they come into care and they get long-term orders, is that they're placed in the foster care process until they turn the age of 18. On what basis, Leah, would have they made that decision? It's really complex in each individual case of these types of situations, so it's hard to say why they made that decision. But I asked Dr Conley Wright about this and she explained how this type of decision is made. So the reasons why long-term order are made are about the best interests of the child. So, um, And that's a complex thing in the sense that it's often a child can be removed because of immediate safety concerns and placed into another home with a relative or with a foster carer. And then a determination is made at a later point whether it's safe for them to be returned. But also then at that point, if it's in their best interests, uh, in some cases, children have formed a bond in an attachment with the carers that they're with. They have uh, had stability in their lives. They are you know, part of a community. They're um, going to school or preschool. And so it may not be be perceived as being by the courts and and by family and community services as being in the child's best interest to be taken out of a stable placement um, where they're being well cared for, um, to be restored. These are very, very complex questions. So it's, it's not simply a question of safety. It's also really for an individual child and that individual child's best interests, uh, what is going to be the best thing for that child. Regardless of the circumstances or situations, there has to be an element of empathy with birth parents, that that is something you never want to go through, is to lose the custody of your children. How did Daniel and Stacey deal with that? It's a tragic situation, you know, for both the kids and for their birth parents. And, you know, again, going into the history of why this decision was made isn't necessary, but it is no doubt devastating for any parent to have their child removed under these circumstances. And Daniel actually spoke about this in his police statement. That meant our children were put in the care of the minister until they were 18 years old. That meant we didn't get them back even if we tried. At that time, when the final orders went through, I thought about taking Lindsay and William, but I knew it wasn't the right thing to do. I learned from that the last time I needed to earn Doc's trust and to be a better person. Yet again, Leah, William's beautiful personality started to shine even in those first initial few weeks and months when he started to live with here and get to know his new family. Yeah, they've spoken about how William's cheeky, vibrant spirit started to come out really early on and as he settled into his new life, that just flourished. For yours, how how did him coming into your lives change your lives? Changed it forever, but in a really positive way. And I think for everybody, a part of that and who was, and everyone was impacted by that Mm. in a positive way, you know. Um, And even things outwardly that, um, you know, you'd be going shopping or walking down the street, but he'd also have impact on others and and just people could actually see that he had this big smile on his face and he was 
I don't know, he's a, he's a little boy full of joy. Mm. Full of joy. <laughs> yeah, I'm taking a video. So that's another home video taken by his foster father on William's second birthday and he's sitting in a high chair and he's got his chocolate birthday cake smeared all over his face and you can just see the joy in his face. (laughs) Happy birthday, William. Leo, I just, listening to that audio, want to burst into tears because we just keep... um, remembering that that is a precious little boy who had been through so much in just three years, so much in difficult situations and circumstances, and he was still filled with so much joy and so much laughter and I just cannot stop thinking about his big, beautiful brown eyes and his joyous laugh. Yeah, and the thing that really strikes me when I see that video and hear it is the love in his foster dad's voice as well. You can just hear how much joy he gets out of William and how much love he has for him and that just it just radiates from both of them. Leah, William and Lindsay are settling into their new life with their new foster parents but they do still maintain some form of contact with their birth parents during supervised visitations. Can you take us through what was happening there? Stacey and Daniel were entitled to initially monthly visits and that was gradually reduced to bi-monthly. And those visits were always supervised, so it meant that someone either from the department or from uh, the supervising NGO, I think it was Salvation Army, was helping them out at the time, um, they would be supervised by them. And during that time when they were having those visits and, and you know, throughout William and Lindsay's lives, the birth parents were not privy to any information about the foster parents. They they didn't know where they lived. They didn't even know their surnames. So I think that's important to note in the context of this case. And Stacey spoke about this in her police statement. I don't know their last names. I've actually never met them. Docs have told me that they aren't comfortable meeting Daniel and I. I have seen the female foster carer once. I turned up early to a contact visit and I saw her with Ben from the Salvation Army. Ben supervises our visits. I walked past Ben and the female foster carer to go to the toilet and when I came back, she was still there. We didn't talk to each other. Then the female foster carer just left. I've never seen the male foster carer. I wouldn't know what he looks like. I don't know where they live with my kids. I don't know what car they have. Leah, in this situation, they were very specific about keeping certain details private. Is that the situation in every case with foster care? From what I understand, it's not necessarily standard protocol to keep information on foster carers particularly secret from birth parents. But in this case, obviously, there was a a range of reasons to make this kind of decision. I'm sure the fact that Stacey and Daniel had absconded with William before was a factor. I think it's also up to the foster carers as to how much they're comfortable with. But the important thing to note in this case is that that information was very, very limited. Stacey and Daniel did not know much information at all about Peter and Jane. As we mentioned earlier, Leah, the whole foster care situation is incredibly complicated and difficult and very emotional for adults, let alone little children. As we know, Lindsay and William were so incredibly young. They were taken away from their birth parents. They're not sure who this new family is, who their loved ones are, where they're living. And to make things even more complicated, who to call mum, who to call dad. Take us through what happened there. 
Yeah, so obviously this is such a confusing situation for the kids and such a difficult situation for the parents. And Lindsay and William, you know, for quite a long time when they were living with Jane and Peter, they still did call Stacey and Daniel mum and dad. Um, But that slowly changed over time as they grew older and more attached to their foster parents. And Stacey actually spoke about that in her police statement as well. Up until the beginning of this year, Lindsay called me mum, but now she doesn't really call me anything. She doesn't know what to call me. She has called me Stacy before. Last time I saw Lindsay, she screamed at me, you're not my mum, Jane is my mum. Lindsay also calls her dad Daniel rather than dad. Up until the beginning of this year, William called me mum as well. The last time I saw William, he didn't really call me anything, but the visit before that, he called me his birth mum. It upsets me that Lindsay and William don't call me mum, but I know I'm their mum. I feel more upset for the kids because it would be confusing for them. I want my children back. I don't want them to be with them forever. Leah, you can hear there from Stacey that she's pretty adamant, understandably. She wants her children back. She wants William and Lindsay living with her. But it's interesting to note that the caseworker has said, working on this case, there was no animosity between the biological and foster parents. That's right. So their caseworker actually recently testified at the coronial inquest and in that testimony, he actually said that there didn't seem to be any animosity between the foster parents and the birth parents. He said that nothing had happened during any of the contact visits that would cause concern. There was no indication that Stacey and Daniel were trying to get any information about Jane and Peter. And in fact, he told the inquest that the biological parents had accepted, and this is a direct quote, that the children received a good standard of care with the foster parents. Leah, I can understand it from a foster carer's point of view. It would be very difficult to maintain that relationship with the biological parents, especially if there were issues that had forced authorities to take those children away from the birth parents. And as foster carers, you just want to do everything you possibly could to maintain consistency for love and care for those kids. But Jane and Peter were also quite adamant that having contact with the biological parents for William and Lindsay was very important. Yeah, that's right. And they've always spoken to me about how much they value that relationship between William and Lindsay and their birth parents and how they they don't want to replace them. They don't want to diminish that relationship, that that continues to be significant to those children's lives. And I spoke to them about that again recently. Never, ever had the view that we would replace his mum and dad because we can't. No. We can't. Um, didn't want to. Um, I don't think it would be fair of us to take away the role that his mum and dad have in his life. Um, And what we always wanted to do was embrace that. Um, I think we have, you know, we have a role to play and that was our role as what we were doing was to assist in this, this particular scenario. And it just happened to be that, you know, that, there was a, an incredible bond and connection across it, across everyone. Mm. And it, it almost seemed just absolutely normal, yeah. absolutely just right. And I think we were incredibly fortunate for William coming into our lives. As, as awful as circumstances are that caused him to that place, um, as foster carers, you look after the children that you're asked to look after and you look after the children, loving the children for who they are. You don't make choices as to who you love and who you don't love. And particularly with children, they're just so innocent. Mm. And so we 
we took our role very seriously, which was to provide a loving, caring, supportive home for him and do the best thing by him that we could possibly do. It's interesting that Jane says there that the children are innocent because we often forget that, that they are innocent victims in very, very complicated and difficult adult lives. Yeah, that's right. And this situation is obviously all about them, but it's kind of happening around them and to them and they don't really get a say on it. So it must just be so confusing for them. And Leah, you got some expert analysis into that critical relationship and maintaining that relationship, why it's so important between birth parents and their children. Yeah, Dr. Conley Wright explains that importance of maintaining the contact between um, kids like Lindsay and William and their birth parents. We have learned from people who were adopted in particular that it's important for people to understand their stories and to know where they come from, if they're in care, why they're in care at a developmentally appropriate level that they can get more detailed information as they grow older. Um, and that it's also important to maintain a connection to that birth family if that child as an adult in particular wants to have that relationship with their birth relatives. So really what the foster cares. Uh, or kinship cares or adoptive parents are doing is they're kind of holding that relationship, they're keeping it going, they're maintaining that contact so the child knows who these people are, has that connection with them, and then they have the determination as adult if they maintain that relationship or not. Um, but we we know that it helps children to to know where they come from for their identity, and then if they don't have that information, it can be quite confusing. Leah, that's such an interesting insight there from an expert because many people would say, look, if there's been issues with the biological parents, it's kind of very black and white. There's not to be any contact. But that's a really interesting perspective, isn't it, that it benefits the children and long-term because of their emotional development that, that they know the situation and then later in life they can navigate and make informed decisions. Yeah, that's right. And it, it gives the children the chance to make their own choices, you know, when they're old enough to and, and to form their own opinions and thoughts about things. And I know that Jane and Peter certainly supported that. You know, they they supported maintaining that relationship and they didn't want to make any choices for William and Lindsay. And Leah, for Jane and Peter, they were adamant that this wasn't a short-term solution as being the foster parents for both William and Lindsay. Yeah, so as I mentioned before, both William and Lindsay were under long-term care orders, which meant that they were to be in the care of Jane and Peter until they turned 18. And that's what Jane and Peter wanted. You know, they wanted kids that they could raise as their own. And I spoke to them recently about their plans for William's future. Were you making plans for his future and what were they? The plans for his future, like any other parent would have, is that you have a child that grows, happy. A, um, a loving, normal family. You know, uh, socially aware, good contributor to society and really is happy and fulfilling doing the things that he wants to do. Mm. And that's, that's as much as we had. And is it true they'd already made informal inquiries about adopting both William and Lindsay? Yeah, so at this stage it was just an informal conversation that they'd had with their caseworker um, about the process of formal adoption. And Dr Conley Wright explains this process in this type of situation. When a child is in a long-term 
uh, order with parental responsibility to the minister and they're in foster care, the foster carers can make a choice to offer um, guardianship for the child or to pursue open adoption. So a guardianship order can be approved by the children's court or by regional court. Um, and that is a legal order that the sole parental responsibility is vested in that guardian until the child is 18. And so that can be that foster care, or as I said, it can be a relative as well. Uh, For foster carers, they also have the option to pursue an adoption through the New South Wales Supreme Court. And that process is quite um, a serious process. There's a lot of care taken with that process. And the court will assess whether the child's best interest will be promoted by an open adoption now and into the future, and whether adoption is clearly preferable to the other options, which are usually long-term foster care. Leah Stacey and Daniel were not made aware of those informal conversations or processes that both Peter and Jane had made to formally adopt William and Lindsay. And this is, of course, all in the weeks and the months leading up to William's disappearance. Let's quickly talk about the birth parents and the last time they saw William during one of their visitations before he disappeared in 2014. So the last time Stacey and Daniel saw William was at their scheduled visitation in August, which also included their younger biological brother, um, Stacey and Daniel's um, other biological son, who was still in their care at the time. And for the purposes of this podcast, I'm going to call him Francis. Um, So the visit was in late August and it was about three weeks before William disappeared. And Stacey was actually heavily pregnant with the couple's fourth child. Now, what's important to note here is that William had a black eye during that visitation. What had caused that? According to his his foster parents, his foster mother specifically, um, they were at home. She was having a cup of tea with a friend who had come over um, to visit and William was crawling up on the couch to sit on her lap for a cuddle. And uh, as kids do, crawling up there, lost his balance, he fell off and hit his head on the corner of the coffee table. Um, so he had a bruised eye as a result of that and that's what um, Jane uh, says is, is how that happened. So the caseworker actually called... Um, um, Stacey before the visit in August to let her know that um, that he had a black eye and told her what had happened. Was Stacey concerned about that? Oh, look, I'm sure that um, she was concerned about anything that related to um, William's health. Um, but, you know, she accepted, I think, that that's, that's what had happened and certainly hasn't insinuated anything else. And what happened on that final visit? So the visit took place at a play centre in North Sydney from about 10am until midday. Uh, It was actually an hour longer than usual to make up for the previous visit in June that Stacey and Daniel um, had missed for various reasons. So Stacey recalled that last visit with William in her police statement. Usually when I see the kids, William is off running around and Lindsay sits with me. William is more interested in what's happening around him. But this time William was happy sitting on my lap and giving me a cuddle. He was more affectionate than usual. This time it was Lindsay that was running around. When I saw William, I could still see the faint bruise near his eye. This visit was pretty busy because there were lots of kids around. Plus, there were three people supervising, which made it busy. They followed us everywhere. I would say it was a good visit. We always had good contact visits. They're never bad. We gave William some clothes and a pair of sneakers. At the end of the visit, Lindsay and William got an ice cream and then Ben said it was time to go. Lindsay and William gave me a hug and a kiss before they left. That is the last time I saw William. 
let's move to that critical day that William disappeared. Subsequently, both the biological and foster parents were seen by police investigators as suspects, especially considering the history with William's biological parents. Tell us what the biological parents were doing on the day that William disappeared. Both Stacey and Daniel were in Sydney at the time and it's important to note as well that they were not aware that Jane and Peter had taken the two kids to Kendall that weekend. Jane and Peter were required to notify the department or their caseworker whenever they took the kids outside of Sydney, but that didn't necessarily mean that um, it was passed on to the birth parents, to Stacey and Daniel, that they had left the city. But they did do their normal notification that they were taking the kids out of Sydney. Um, And Stacey and Daniel remained in Sydney the night before and the day of his disappearance. Um, Stacey was still heavily pregnant with their fourth child at the time. And she recounted those uh, moments leading up to that day in her police statement. Daniel took our son out for a few hours in the afternoon. He took him out for a walk and went to Woolworths. They got back just before it was getting dark. I made ham and salad sandwiches for dinner. Daniel, Francis and I stayed home that evening. We didn't go out anywhere. We didn't have any visitors and I don't remember receiving any phone calls. Francis was in bed by 8pm. I don't remember what exact time I went to bed, but it wouldn't have been any later than midnight. Daniel was still up in the lounge room when I went to bed. Then he came in and left the room again. Now, that's Stacey talking about the Thursday night. William disappeared the next morning in Kendall, some 350 k's away from Sydney. Daniel and Stacey say the morning William disappeared, they were in Sydney. And what were they doing that morning? They were both in Sydney at their home. Uh, Daniel actually decided not to go that to work that morning because he wasn't feeling well and he had previously injured his shoulder. So he instead spent the morning at a nearby McDonald's and he spoke about that in his police statement. And again, this isn't his real voice. I woke up early Friday morning about 5am and Stacey and Francis were asleep. So I walked up to McDonald's on Woodville Road at Maryland's. I got there about 5.30am or 6am and had some pancakes and used the tablet on the free Wi-Fi. I stayed there for an hour or so and walked back home. When I walked back home, Stacy and Francis were still asleep. My shoulder was still sore, so I didn't go to work. I think I sent my boss a message on his mobile phone to say that I wouldn't be at work, but I'm not 100% sure I did. Both Stacy and I just hung around home Friday morning. Very interestingly, Leah, Daniel's mother who is William's biological grandmother, said that she had a phone conversation with Daniel that morning with some very interesting information. She alleges he told her, quote, something did not feel right. Yeah, so Daniel's mother, William's biological grandmother, later told police about this phone call that she had from her son saying something doesn't feel right. He later claimed he doesn't actually remember making that call, but he said he was probably referring to the fact that he wasn't feeling well enough to go to work. So he told police he remained home for the rest of that day while Stacey went out shopping. Now, Stacey also told police they both remained in Sydney all day. On Friday the 12th of September, I got up at about 9.30am. Francis and I slept in. We're usually up about 7am or earlier. Daniel was already up by the time Francis and I were up. Daniel would usually be at work during the week, but he has hurt his shoulder. I wanted to go to the shop and get some food. I told Daniel I was getting ready. It got to 11.30am and Daniel still wasn't ready. I told him he was taking too long, so Francis and I went on our own and Daniel stayed at home. Francis and I walked towards the shop that are on the main street of Granville. 
Francis was in his pram. I just took the little stroller. The shops were on the way to Granville Station. I first went to the Commonwealth Bank ATM that's attached to the bank. I withdrew $850 from the ATM. I then went to the Optus shop, which is on the same street, but on the other side of the road. I bought $40 Optus credit. I sat down near the subway shop and put the credit on my phone. I tried to call Daniel a few times, but he didn't answer. I called my brother and I spoke to him. Francis and I caught the train from Granville to Blacktown. As soon as I got on the train, I texted Daniel. Leah, it's interesting to note, as Stacey was shopping in Sydney, Daniel was supposed to meet her at the shopping centre but sent her a text saying he wasn't able to make it. Yeah, so Stacey actually sent him a text saying that they were going shopping at this local shopping centre and that he could meet us there if they wanted to. Um, So her and her her son Francis were shopping. Again, she's heavily pregnant and they were actually shopping for the new baby, um, eating lunch at the food court and that kind of thing. Francis fell asleep in his stroller and then she called Daniel while they were at the shopping centre and he told her that he was still at home and he wasn't going to be meeting them. So she left shortly after and made her way back home where they found Daniel um, was already home at about 4pm. That, of course, is the day that William disappeared. And what time did they get the knock at the door? Police knocked on their front door. So it was only shortly after Stacey and Francis arrived home from shopping. And this is around six hours after William vanished. Again, William vanished at around 10.30am. And this is just after 4pm that police knocked on their door in Sydney. So Stacey opened the door to find two uniformed police officers standing there. She later recounted that moment in her police statement. They asked me if I knew where William was. I was really confused. I got worried when I first saw the police because last time police came, I had a warrant out. I told them I didn't know where he was. I started to get worried. They told me William was missing. At first, I just thought he might be missing from daycare. Subsequently, police then searched their house and they thought they may have found William when they looked at his little brother, Francis. The officers um, went into the house and Stacey allowed them to search the house. They went from room to room um, to see if they could see anything suspicious. And they went out into the backyard, which is where they found Francis, William's little brother, playing. And they immediately thought that he looked like William, um, but obviously soon established that that wasn't him and, in fact, was his little brother. So they asked Stacey and Daniel where they'd been that day and she presented them with the receipts from her shopping trip. And eventually they were satisfied that he wasn't there and so they left. Daniel also recalled this in his statement to police. Uniform police knocked on our door and told us that our son William was missing. I was shocked when they told us and thought it must have been a joke. I didn't take it seriously. The police checked our house to make sure William wasn't there. This was the first time I was aware that William was missing. Not long after the police left, we turned on the TV and saw it was on the news. So around six hours after William disappeared, his disappearance was already making news right across the country and a police investigation was well and truly underway. While that was unfolding in Kendall, back in Sydney with the birth parents, three women arrived from the Salvation Army. Yeah, so shortly after those officers left, three women from the Salvation Army arrived. The Salvation Army, again, as I mentioned before, that was the agency that was managing the case for their foster situation at the time. So they arrived um, and spoke to Stacey and Daniel, informing them about what had happened in Kendall. Stacey recounts how she felt in that moment in her police statement. I got upset and I started crying because I was worried about William. William and Lindsay are really close. 
Lindsay looks out for him and they're like best friends. If Lindsay was with William, she wouldn't have let him wander off. She always looks out for him. That's what I don't understand. So for Stacey and Daniel in Sydney, they were coming to terms with the fact that earlier they'd had both of their children, Lindsay and William, taken from them. And now they were coming to terms with the fact that William had disappeared and there was a major police investigation underway. And we're set to learn more about that in episode three, Leah. Yes, next week we'll talk a lot more about that crucial 24 hours after William went missing. And that's obviously critical to a police investigation as well as the search, the huge ground search that was conducted to try and find him. But we'll also talk about what that first day was like for Jane and Peter as they come to terms with what's happening and have to think about that worst case scenario. And also what they saw and heard in that first day that could later become significant to the investigation. Where's William Tyrrell? is produced and presented by Leah Harris in conversation with Natasha Belling. Produced and edited by Stuart Buckland. The recording and audio work by the 10 team of Mitch Willard, Bevan Tantu and Josh Pollock. Additional voices by Charlotte Goodlett and Mitch Willard. Special thanks go to Dr. Amy Conley-Wright from the University of Sydney for her contribution. Thanks to everyone in the 10 News team for their support and assistance. You can contact the show at whereswilliam at network10.com.au. If you have any information that may assist this case at all, please contact police or Crime Stoppers on 1800 333 000. If you would like to find out more about the Where's William campaign, please visit www.whereswilliam.org. You can also assist with the search by making a tax-deductible donation there. This has been a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.